0: so as I as I mentioned this morning um, we wanted to use this gathering of incredibly interesting and smart and accomplished and well-connected people here in the room to have a bit of a different conversation about what the different pressures and drivers uh, and challenges are facing our system. So this morning we had Mustafa talk about some of the demographic challenges uh, that are facing uh, the system. Um, We want to now... Turn to a little bit more of a global perspective, and in order to do that, we have um, we're very very fortunate to welcome uh, Dr. James Orbinski uh, to our to our our, our platform. Uh, Dr. Orbinski, I, I know many of you in this room uh, know him, have seen him speak before. Um, he uh, heads up the uh, Dadala Center for Global Health Research at York University. Uh, he's worked providing medical humanitarian relief in situations of war famine. Uh, Epidemic uh, with Medicine Sans Frontier. Uh, And uh, we're obviously going to talk a little bit about pandemic. We're obviously going to talk a little bit about epidemic and some of the other drivers, but um, we've got uh, a a good amount of time with him today. So I would ask that you please uh, take your seats again and please help me welcoming uh, Dr. James Orbinski to the stage.
1: I'm uh, delighted to be here and delighted to uh, just share some thoughts and some reflections uh, around uh, some of the challenges uh, that uh, are contextual uh, in terms of uh, health innovation. Um, Over the morning and the early part of the afternoon, we've talked very much about uh, innovation from a technological perspective. Uh, And what I'd like to do uh, is put uh, uh, that conversation and some of the issues that emerge Uh, Around that conversation uh, in a global perspective. This is uh, Anthony Fauci. Many people in the room will know uh, Anthony. Uh, He is the uh, uh, now current director of the American Institute for Allergy uh, and Infectious Disease. And this is him yesterday holding up a model uh, of a vaccine uh, to COVID. Uh, This has now been submitted to the FDA uh, for clinical trials. Uh, and they expect, based on the modelling that they've uh, engaged in thus far, uh, they expect uh, that they will have a highly efficacious uh, vaccine, probably within about uh, 90 uh, to 180 days. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody will get access to that vaccine. It will take probably 24 months or longer uh, to scale production of that vaccine uh, so that even a minor percentage of the global population will have access to that vaccine. So, first, first point. Technology is extremely important uh, in terms of uh, innovation and in terms of uh, helping us uh, uh, design new tools uh, to uh, address uh, both health issues and other uh, social, uh, political, and other, other issues. But at the same time, uh, it is technology, the fact today... Uh, that 6 million people every single day are airborne. Uh, it is technology uh, that, in fact, poses uh, or creates uh, the primary vector, if you will, uh, for uh, contagion of uh, 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 the coronavirus. So I just put the question of technology in this paradox. Right? So it is neither good nor bad, uh, but it is not uh, um, it, it, it is not value neutral uh, in terms of how uh, it is used or uh, in terms of uh, the impacts that it, that it has. When I think about technology and medicine, technology and in my world now, clinical public health, I think about this question of rivers and landscapes. You I know, mean, look at this beautiful, uh, beautiful image. Does the river shape the landscape or does the landscape? shape the river? There's no right answer to this question. What is clear is that there is a symbiotic relationship between the river and the landscape. Now, technology and the way we use technology is not simply a matter of symbiosis between the tool and the person who uses the tool. There is choice. And the values that we apply in the the application and the production of particular technologies have enormous, enormous uh, importance. We're now in the middle, I don't know if it's the middle, but we're certainly very much in the upward uh, swing of the fourth industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution was uh, the introduction of the steam engine. The second industrial revolution was essentially the uh, introduction of electrification and mass distribution of produced goods. The third Industrial Revolution, 1969, the introduction of the digital computer. Uh, And we, I I think most people, there's a few exceptions, uh, uh, have lived through and into uh, that revolution. We're now in the middle of the fourth Industrial Revolution, which is a revolution as you in this room will certainly be familiar with this language. Many people aren't, uh, but you'll be familiar with the the fact that this is a cyber-physical revolution. Uh, It's a revolution that means uh, smart cities, for example, are possible. And in fact, Toronto is one of the epicenters of of experimentation uh, around smart uh, smart city uh, uh, technology and the the, uh, interaction of human beings and technologies. It also means using the Internet of Things. And this this revolution is widely recognized by some of the greatest thinkers in the world is actually one of the most transformational times in human history, if not, in fact, the most transformational time. And I remind you, it's not simply a symbiotic relationship between the river and the landscape. The choices, the values that we apply in either creating or using a particular technology, this is fundamental. This is determinant. We we have many, many... Uh, technological pathways uh, that are evident uh, I- today uh, in science uh, and health. I call it big science and health. You have genetic manipulation, cognitive health uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, blockchain, absolutely incredible technology, uh, and, of course, the Internet of Things. There are many others, but these are just a small little smattering, a sampling of, 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 of some of the technologies that are available. We're also at a point where we're more connected Today than we've ever been at, uh, uh, in human history, uh, when the world population uh, was 6.3 billion, which was only uh, a few short years ago. It was only about 15 to seven, 15 to 18 years ago. There were f- there were 500 million devices on the planet that connected uh, uh, us to each other. As population grew, you can just see from the numbers here and go all the way to the end, as population grew by a paltry 1.3 billion over, over a 13-year period, the number of devices went from 500 million uh, to uh, more than 50 billion uh, of interconnectivity, interconnected devices that, that, that link human beings to uh, uh, cyber-physical uh, uh, systems. So this is, in such a short period of time, this is just an example, uh, but this is a profound change in the way that human beings organize themselves, the way that human beings live, work, play, interact with each other, and also interact with their physical environment. Now, the Economist Intelligence Unit asked did a survey, I believe it was in 2016, did a survey among various sectors and asked which sector was the most likely to benefit uh, from this cyber-physical of uh, uh, a fourth industrial revolution? Well, very obviously, healthcare, care. Uh, and very obviously, uh, uh, here in this room, this has been largely the subject matter uh, of the day. Uh, the, the technologies themselves, the kind of regulatory structures around those technologies. But I would argue, and I put to you very gently and with great respect, those perspectives that have been articulated largely today are very much from a technological perspective and from a technological innovation perspective there have not been deeply uh, mindful or deeply engaged uh, in uh, the social the political the ethical uh, frameworks that within which technologies emerge and these are fundamental to explore and as technology leaders you have a profound responsibility to be engaged in these conversations uh, and i just want to now take you uh, on a broader walk through the world uh, in terms of technology uh, and in terms of the kind of forces that are at play in, uh, uh, in shaping our, our global world, but also our local world. And I think I have two messages for you that I just want you to really think about over the next few minutes. And I'm very happy and looking forward to, to, to some discussion and question and answer. Two core messages. We don't live in a bubble. Much as we think of uh, uh, the uh, the technology community is not independent of the social, political, and environmental context uh, within which it it exists. Canada as a political entity, uh, uh, as a physical entity, is not isolated. Uh, Much as we think of a border, much as we think of our economic structure, much as we think of our our GDP relative to the GDP, for example, of Malawi, we are not... We are not independent. We're absolutely mutually interdependent. And we are far more so now than we have ever been uh, in human history. And technology is a key element of that interdependence. And it's it's extremely important that we understand the social, political, and ethical environments that we exist in and that we create uh, in terms of structuring the uses of our technologies. So, I'm not a Luddite. This is the leader of the Luddite movement. Uh, I'm actually, uh, I will, uh, at the end of my, my, my little presentation, I've got a whole bunch of things I'm going to show you uh, that are really cool uh, technologies and uses of contemporary technology, but for very specific types of, uh, of, of, um, uh, of applications that I'm deeply involved in at my research institute. Um, the issue, however that I really want to just put to you. The misuse of technology, the unforeseen consequences of the introduction of a particular technology, uh, the wrong social priorities around the uses of technology, these are very, very serious issues that I think you need to be uh, aware of and you need to consider as you think about uh, advancing technologies. This is a picture of a great hero of mine, a great dear friend of mine. She died two years ago. She was 94. Was Ursula Franklin. Uh, she was a professor, first woman professor of engineering at University of Toronto, first woman professor of engineering in Canada. Uh, she was a Jew who became a Quaker. She was a uh, survivor of the Holocaust. She was in a, in a concentration camp for many years. Uh, and she became a Quaker because she believed That that particular community had a particular understanding uh, of the pursuit of peace in a situation, uh, in a uh, post-war situation or global context, where there was so much anger and so much possibility that that, uh, a conflict could again emerge. Uh, And she, having lived through the Holocaust herself, uh, dedicated her life to become a pacifist. She was absolutely not pacific. She was one of the most radical feminists I've ever met in my life. She was one of the best uh, 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 metallurgists uh, uh, in the world. Uh, She uh, was a profoundly uh, uh, complex uh, and and articulate thinker. Toward the end of her career, she focused on technology. And she wrote now what is a seminal book uh, in uh, 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 technology policy uh, domains. And it it was called... The Real World of Technology. It was a a Massey lecture and a brilliant book. And I absolutely urge you to read it. Highly readable, uh, highly, highly intelligible, uh, and as relevant today as it was uh, when it was published, I believe, uh, in 1988. She defined technology. There are many, many definitions of technology. But she defined technology in three simple words. Technology as practice. And she said technology is fundamentally about, quote-unquote, the way we do things around here. That's how she defined technology. And she said, essentially, that technology is not simply tools, products, processes, or algorithms, but it's the way in which that is integrated into our culture. And it's the way in which we choose to do things around here with that particular technology. Uh, And I strongly urge you uh, to read the book. That's that's a critical, critical concept um, that uh, has guided me a great deal uh, over the last few years, and particularly in the creation of this new research institute that I'm leading at York. So the point here is that values matter uh, in driving technology and innovation. And what values matter most? Well, Ursula talked a great deal about equity, fairness, and justice. And in my view, and if there are political philosophers or moral philosophers or ethicists in the room, I'm sure we could debate this for hours. But in my view, the idea of fairness and the idea of justice, in fact, is actually operationally incorporated into this concept of equity. Now, equity is a concept uh, that is different uh, from equality, uh, and it's different uh, from uh, in fact, uh, 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 conceptions of, of distribu- uh, distributive justice. I won't get into all of this, but it's a very, very particular operational definition of how to move forward in terms of how we think about technology. I'll show you a nice image in a moment. The other value that I think is absolutely critical when we think about technology is effectiveness. Whatever we create, it has to work. It has to do the thing that you set out uh, for it to, uh, to do. Uh, it has to have a measure of effectiveness uh, that actually achieves the outcome that you want. And then the other key value that I think is extremely important when we think about technology and the production of technology, and particularly in that framework of the way we do things around here, is this idea of excellence. There are no, there, there's no easy road to the creation of, of, of good, meaningful uh, uh, technology. And there can be no double standard for the rich or for the poor, for the included, for the excluded. The the, the idea of excellence uh, in terms of the tools and technologies that are created for people, if they are to be effective and if they are to be equitable in their access and their distribution, Uh, these three values come one as a triad, one feeding the other. Equity, effectiveness, uh, and excellence. Now, equity... What is equity, as I, as I began to, to, to talk about it a moment ago? This is reality. Right? Just this, this picture just speaks volumes. Uh, there are some who are clearly more privileged, more advantaged than others. Uh, they, can, they, they get the big view. They get the big, uh, the big prize. They get to see the game or, or, uh, from the best possible perspective. There are some who uh, just reach that threshold and see it, but don't see quite in the same way as the person who has the bird's eye view. And there are some people who just don't see it, just don't uh, get to see the game. Well, equality, this is equality, where you treat everybody the same, but you do not get the same outcomes. And I think, again, a picture speaks a thousand words. If you treat everybody the same, and for those who are different, some who are marginalized, some who are more vulnerable... Uh, uh, regardless of, of the, the, the equality of treatment, the outcomes still remain fundamentally unjust. This is equity. In terms of, uh, uh, the, the, in my view, the appropriate use of effective uh, technology that is rooted in a practice of excellence uh, and that is, is fundamentally committed to providing that technology to those who need it most, Uh, And to, uh, not as a trickle-down effect, but as a primary effect. Now, those are social, policy, and political choices rooted in basic ethics and basic moral choices. So, the world today, many people will be surprised to hear me say this, but the world today has actually gotten pretty good. Uh, uh, There's been some major, major improvements uh, over the last 70 or so years. uh, Globally. Life expectancy has actually gone up in a very significant way. Poverty has actually gone down in a very significant way. And I'm thinking, I'm speaking globally, in aggregate. And we also know that child mortality has also very significantly diminished over the last 50 to 70 uh, years. And again, I'm speaking in ag- aggregate. But it's come at a cost. And here's the cost we've seen massive increases in carbon dioxide emissions massive uh, ocean acidification, massive increases in energy use, massive decreases in tropical rainforest, uh, massive increases in freshwater use, uh, and um, massive increases in uh, nitrogen-based and phos- phosphorus-based uh, fertilizers uh, around the world. So much so that this is radically altering the very nature of nature, we also see that there are huge differences globally uh, in terms of life expectancy. In Canada, life expectancy, two, this is, these are based on numbers two years ago. In Canada, life expectancy for a person born today is 80 years, with, uh, on average, uh, between men and women, is 80 years. In Malawi, it's 47 years. So it's almost, just a little less than half. Now that's, that's just unbelievable, but it's true. And that is, the, that is the inequity that exists in the world today. And that abyss between the north and the south, between the rich and the poor, that abyss is growing. It's not shrinking, it's growing. So we also know that inequality around the world is, varies greatly. This, you don't need to read this in great detail, but what this graph shows by region, and each color represents a different region of the world, What this graph shows is the percentage of wealth of a particular region that is owned by a percentage of the population, by 10% uh, or less of the population. Just go right to the very end, uh, the green bar, Uh, and I can't read it. Uh, Somebody can read it for me. What's the the Middle East? Yeah, the Middle East. So 61% of the aggregate wealth of the Middle East is controlled by less than 10% of the people in the Middle East. Now that number, you can see as well from this graph that there's variability over time, and what that variability over time means. And the other thing you can see as well, by the way, is the upward slope of that difference. Right? so wealth is accumulating in more and more people. Uh, more wealth is accumulating in fewer and fewer people's hands, and more and more people have less and less uh, uh, disposable income. But what this shows, more than anything, when you see the variances across uh, regions, it shows us that institutions and policies matter. That the, the, the choices of government, the choices of societies, these fundamentally matter to the distribution, to the equitable distribution of wealth. The other big issue over the last 120 years, the, probably the single most important material issue, is a five-fold increase in human population. We, have, um, we are adding a billion people to the planet now uh, every 13 years. We're 7.6 billion, uh, and every 13 years we're adding a billion people to the planet. Utterly unsustainable. There's no way uh, that that can continue, and that we can continue to grow in the way and in, in the, in, in the, according to the patterns of growth uh, that we've established, most especially over the last 40 years. There's no way we can continue to do that. Uh, uh, our planet simply will not uh, sustain that degree of activity. The other key thing, massive urbanization taking place. In 1800, 3% of the world's population lived in cities. Today, it's 54%. So in less than 220 years, that's a huge, huge change in the way that human beings live, work, play, organize themselves. And that, is in, that, that movement is continuing. So that by 2050, which is only 30 years away, that number will be 66% of people will live in cities. Now they will not be, that 66% of people living in cities are not living in this shiny, beautiful, gleamy, urban, downtown core of, of Ottawa uh, with beautiful infrastructure and parks and park lands all around and riding trails and so on. This is the anomaly. Between 50 and 75% today of people who live in cities, live in slums, in barrios, and in squatter settlements, where there is no formal infrastructure. The only infrastructure that you see, this is Kibera in uh, in, uh, uh, Kenya, just a, a, a slum surrounding the formal city of Nairobi. The only infrastructure that they see is what goes through them. This is the train track. It does not service this community. It's not part of the community. It doesn't provide any goods or services to this community. And that is emblematic of roads, sewers, electrical systems, police services, education, all of the basic things that we take uh, for granted. And this is not a minority of the world's population. Remember, 50 to 75% of the world's population live like this. And that is is increasing. So we are not somehow... um, I'll show you in a moment. We're not immune uh, to what is happening in the rest of the world. Um, We know that uh, in, for example, Delhi, this is a picture from uh, Delhi uh, this summer, air pollution. Delhi is an example. uh, Pollution kills 9 million people every year. That's 16% of all known known mortality. Air pollution kills 6.5 million people which is about 62% of that, that number, just quickly, that number of, of 9 million. So air pollution causes at least 6.5 million people to die every year around the world. And when we think about air pollution, we think, oh, well, you know, it's a public health issue. It's not simply a public health issue. When we think about cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular disease is the highest cause of morbidity mortality in Canada we take all kinds of treatments we take anti cholesterol agents we take anti hypertensives we have all kinds of elaborate infrastructure in our tertiary referral service, uh, hospitals for stroke for mi and so on we spend billions of dollars public and private on uh, prevention and treatment of cardiovascular disease pollution air pollution accounts for 30% of the causality associated uh, of the causality associated with uh, uh, cardiovascular disease. So if you want to, from a pu- public policy perspective and a public goods perspective, if we actually wanted to deal with, with reducing the morbidity and mortality associated with cardiovascular disease, this is the single most important thing we could do, deal with air pollution. It's, and, and also the cheapest uh, in, terms of, in terms of interventions. Now think about that from a global perspective. What happens in Delhi affects us. What we do affects Delhi in terms of air. These are, these, are, these are global public goods. The air is a global public good. Uh, it is not something that is ours or theirs. And I, I think you get the concept. Uh, and there are many uh, uh, examples uh, of, of, of this. Our impact on the planet as human beings is so great, our ecological footprint uh, is it's so great that we now call this period the age of the Anthropocene. Uh, and this is a period of geological, environmental, and, and biological transformation uh, of the planet by humans. And as I said a moment ago, we are altering the very nature of nature, um, and uh, that is, uh, and we're doing it with deep ignorance, uh, and we are doing it with with uh, 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 this kind of um, naive uh, enthusiasm. For technology. When Oppenheimer watched the atomic bomb explode for the first time uh, in the Mojave Desert, he turned to his assistant. I have a slide which I didn't include, but I should have. He turned to his assistant, and he quoted the Bhagavad Gita. And he turned to his, his assistant. He watched that bomb explode, and he realized what he had unleashed. And he turned to his assistant, and he said, Now I am become death the maker and destroyer of worlds. And he also said to his assistant, the genie is out of the bottle. What's interesting, when you think about nuclear energy and atomic energy, and the atomic bomb and the atomic project, the Manhattan Project, and all of the other various projects by the other powers at the same time, Russians and Chinese and so on, what's interesting is that all of the scientists who were involved in those projects, virtually all of the scientists, some more publicly than others, but almost all of the scientists, once they saw what they had done, they became peace activists and they became the strongest proponents for the start uh, missile treaty uh, uh, negotiations um, uh, that eventually uh, um, were realized under uh, under Obama and have been anyway i won 't go into that but the this the point here is that the technology is not free of value implications. And the technology, the the unleashing of the technology, I'm not saying don't unleash technology. I'm absolutely not saying that at all. I love technology. I love what we can do with it. But the choices and and the, the values with which we use that technology really matter. And there are some technologies, and Ursula Franklin used to say this to me very often, there are some technologies that we are simply not ready for. We do not have the social, the moral, and the political frameworks to, to, to actually use a, a certain technologies, uh, to their not just to their full effect, but in a way that prevents their negative effect. So our impact on the planet is so great now that we've already crossed five of nine geophysical planetary boundaries. I won't go through them, uh, but the implications are truly profound. We're already seeing... Massive acceleration uh, of the impacts of climate change, which are well beyond what uh, the best scientists in the world have been predicting for the last uh, the last twenty five years or so, uh, the feedback loops and the interactions of feedback loops um, associated with each of these boundaries this is a domain we simply don 't understand it 's just simply too complex at this time. We do not have the technology, the modeling technology, or the modeling algorithmic. Framework to understand the, the, how these uh, various thresholds and various subsystems of a planetary uh, ecosystem, how when those thresholds are crossed, how they interact to create new outcomes. But we do know that our human activity is now creating complex uh, ecologies that uh, bring us into contact uh, with uh, new, uh, new, uh, new uh, uh, infectious diseases, uh, Ebola, for example, Zika, um, uh, uh, and now uh, COVID, uh, or coronavirus—I should say, COVID is the disease, coronavirus is the virus. Uh, these are these th- these are enter these zoonotic diseases are entering into uh, human species and human communities because of our uh, uh, new interaction with previously pristine ecological environments, and also because of our the way in which we interact with other life forms. Uh, And other uh, uh, other systems beyond our own, we do so, generally speaking, in in, in quite an ignorant uh, fashion, and only when uh, 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 disaster strikes do we do we do we wake up uh, and realize that perhaps we're doing something uh, a little untoward. Um, This is an image of the coronavirus, and uh, I put this slide here. uh, Yeah, I put this slide here really to. to show you that there's a that there's a difference uh, between um uh, viruses their infectivity their mortality rates uh their case fatality rates, and therefore a difference in terms of how we think about um approaching containment control and mitigation efforts um, this graph shows us that uh uh yeah. This shows us basically 80,000 cases as of today, a little more than 80,000 cases, about 3,000 deaths now around the world uh, of corona. Uh, and it shows us that the mortality rate relative to the infectivity rate is, much, is actually r- relatively small. However, when we think about the infectivity rate, the fact is that there are some epidemiologists who are suggesting that upwards of 60% of the human population could be infected with corona. Now, if you think of a 2.3 or to 2.6 mortality rate of 60% of the human population, that is a massive, massive problem. And that, I think, from a public health perspective, this is really what uh, is causing great uh, concern and anxiety, uh, and, uh, and I think um, uh, also causing us to reevaluate uh, our approach uh, to um, uh, containment control uh, and mitigation uh, of the epidemic. And I'm happy to talk about that if people uh, want want to talk about it. I included it here because I know it's highly, highly topical. The other big issue I just want to mention is climate change, global warming. If you look at the yellow graph, it's going like this. Well, that's normal climate change over a 650,000-year period. This is uh, 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 climate variation as as measured by carbon uh, dioxide, uh, these most important uh, or most significant greenhouse gas. And you can see uh, uh, at 1950, at the end of the graph, a massive spike in carbon dioxide. Well, that is what is driving uh, not climate change, because climate change is normal variation, right, which is what we have here. But that's driving uh, global warming. And global warming is driving... Massive impacts and, uh, um, uh, around the world. And what you see here from this graph is basically a hockey stick shape uh, to uh, the, the incidence and prevalence of extreme weather events uh, around the world. There is a massive increase in extreme weather events uh, all over the world. Uh, I could show you in great detail uh, 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 maps and, and GIS-based system uh, uh, analyses that, that show you uh, where, how, when and why these extreme weather events are occurring. But the point here is there's a massive increase and that that increase is only going to increase. It's not going down. It will take about 30... If we stopped all carbon emissions now, it, takes a, it will take about 30 years for the sunk uh, uh, or for the emitted carbon or greenhouse gases into the system to play themselves through the meteorologic system, the planetary meteorologic system, and so for, at least for the next thirty years, that number is going up. And what that means in very concrete terms just in our own Canadian context: uh, Fort McMurray, forest fires, uh, and, and fire uh, as well uh, in the BC interior. It also means changing patterns of infectious disease in Canada: Lyme disease, Lyme disease West Nile. Um, there's even there are there are epidemiologists who are talking about malaria. Uh, as, a, as a possibility, the return of malaria. Uh, and this pattern, uh, where, where we see it around the world. We see a massive increase in extreme weather events. We see a massive change in the pattern of infectious diseases, massive changes in crop yields uh, with implications um, uh, for uh, uh, people's daily lives and for the stability of societies. This graph shows us the, uh, in blue... This uh, uh, will show if we, shows us that if we continue on our current policy practices, uh, we will probably end up optimistically by 2100 uh, in a 2.5 to 2.8 degree warmer world. Optimistically. Now, that's, that is if the current policy projections and pledges are actually met. And we know that that's unlikely unless there's a major sea change uh, in uh, the political choices of, of our governments around the world. The gray line shows the trajectory, uh, or the gray band shows the trajectory of temperature increase relative to our use, whoops, relative to our use and the growth in use of fossil fuels uh, and, uh, and or and uh, uh, green other greenhouse, uh, 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 non fossil fuel based greenhouse gas emissions. This is where we're going. And that means a five to seven degree warmer world by 2100. Now that is utterly unimaginable and utterly catastrophic uh, to human societies around the world. And I, I, uh, I cannot uh, uh, emphasize that enough. Uh, This is, this is where we are going, right? And we need to confront this. Uh, And this has implications, not just for the developing world or for, uh, you know, somewhere else. This has implications for us. Uh, and how we approach this, uh, not only in terms of our own CO2 emissions, but how we approach this as a problem of the global commons, and how we engage others to bring them on board uh, to, uh, to address this problem, uh, I think is, is fundamental to a solution, and I think it's something that as Canadians we're actually pretty, uh, pretty good at. We're not bad at actually convening uh, and and respectfully bringing people together and moving moving a group forward uh, to uh, to meaningful solutions. So we're at a time now where the complexity of our world really means that we're also in a much more fragile world. We're also in a world that is not the post World War II world uh, of uh, uh, of the Western uh, liberal international order. Uh, remember. The United Nations was created largely by the United States and its allies. Uh, and it has been funded largely by the United States uh, and its allies, but largely by the United States. That system, the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the Bretton Woods Institutions, and then the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, and then the evolution of the World Trade Organization, that is the architecture Of the Western liberal international order. For for better or for worse, that is the architecture that we created post-World War II. It's the first time in human history that we have a system, again for better or for worse, where we can actually interact formally and informally around governance. Now that system is at risk. We've gone through the Cold War, Cold War ended. We've gone through a period of what some describe as American hyperpower. We've gone through a period now, post 2008 international financial crisis, of the loss of American hegemony, economically certainly not uh, uh, certainly not militarily. The rise of China, also the rise of multiple other uh, uh, places of 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 economic and political aspiration to power. India. Look at what's happening in India. I don't know if people are following. Uh, the, the post Trump visit and the riots and so on that are taking place there, uh, there are major changes in the world, and the system that we relied on, the stability of an international order uh, that stability is seriously at risk and John Eikenberry is not uh, uh, you know one of my undergraduate students he he is He is the guru uh, uh, of of international relations and particularly of Western perspectives on international relations that is at harvard and this is his uh, his statement um, and which he published a, a long and quite red-eyed paper in, in this journal which is the 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 quran if you will with the bible of international relations um, the international order built and led by the united states and its partners is in crisis uh, and there are many dimensions to that rise of populism uh, uh, extremism uh, uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, differences between rich and poor, uh, and so on and so on. But the bottom line is that the system that we think we have worked in, that system um, is, is, is fraying, and I think that's a, g- a generous uh, description. The World Economic Forum looks at global risks. And for whatever you think of the World Economic Forum, one of the things that they do very, very well uh, is every year they put out a global risks analysis report and uh, it's probably one of the most credible uh, public sources of risk analysis. Uh, in, it is, in fact, widely regarded as the most credible public source uh, of risk analysis in the world. They, there are many, as you well know, uh, every government has its own, will, every, will do its own private risk assessment, and every intelligence service and, and, and military in the world will have their own risk analysis. So most of these things are, are highly, highly confidential, but this one isn't. Uh, And it's based on um, interviews of CEOs, of academics, of thought leaders, of policy uh, 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 analysts, uh, NGO leaders, CEOs, and so on. Uh, 3,000 every year. And uh, what they do, essentially, I'm not going to go through this in great detail, but I I just want to highlight where this is, what, what they're emphasizing. They break down risk into a series of categories, and then they have two axes. What's the likelihood and what's the impact? And what we're interested in, more than anything, is that upper right-hand quadrant of high likelihood, high impact. Those are the risks that 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 uh, um, uh, seize the mind uh, of 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 uh, 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 those in positions of responsibility and power. And what you can see here is that, uh, sorry, what you can see here is five of the top ten risks are actually environmental for the planet and what you see over the they're projecting what are the top 10 risks not just for 2020 but over the next 10 years they're again the majority of those risks are environmental Uh, they are about uh, ecological degradation about food insecurity about massive increase in extreme weather events uh, and and um, loss of potable water and then two of the major risks in red are the social, immediate, proximate social and political implications of those uh, environmental uh, risks. So what I'm trying to tell you is that the world is very different uh, uh, than it was even 10 years ago. And for much of the world, this is the biggest issue. Today, not tomorrow, but today, water insecurity. The other big issue for much of the world today is falling crop yields. In the southern region of Africa there are there have been 30 uh, the crop yields have fallen crop yields have fallen by about 34% uh, over the last uh, 5 years or so today in the southern region 14 million people are on world food program assistance uh, this is and the projections are that crop yields in that region will fall by as much as 50% um, uh, over the next 20 years this has massive implications for migration and this i'm just talking about africa alone uh, but this is happening in South uh, America, in, uh, in Asia, in the Caucasus region, in the Middle East. This is happening around the world. And this has massive implications for internal migration. It also has massive implications for conflict. In Syria, and I'm not arguing, I'm not going to argue that climate change was the cause. In Syria, fe- uh, uh, drought led to crop failure in the northern part of the country. People moved. If I could not feed my children, I would move, and I know you would too. People moved from their homes into the southern region of uh, of Syria, uh, and they were of a different ethnicity uh, than people in the south. Um, Assad uh, was like Tito uh, in the former Yugoslavia. He was a strong man who held... Uh, uh, a diversity of ethnicities together under a very, very strict rule. But that rule cracked when people moved. It destabilized the system and then through a series of of, of, uh, of other uh, uh, political sequences, civil war. So the, the, one of the key catalysts was uh, crop failure, secondary to climate change. Exactly the same is true of Darfur, we think of Darfur, we think, oh, terrible, war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, uh, slow-motion genocide. All true, no question. But why? Because of increasing desertification and because of decreased access to potable uh, uh, water and decreased access to arable land. And this pattern is an emerging pattern uh, in various parts of the world. We also know that conflict is regional, it's borderless, uh, that borders are porous, uh, and that uh, conflict in Syria, Afghanistan, uh, uh, Sudan, South Sudan, uh, this has global implications. This is a picture I'm sure you will all uh, recognize. Uh, And people thought of the migration crisis as a global crisis. Not a global crisis. It's a European crisis. 85% of migrants stay within their region and are not trying to get into Europe or Canada or the United States. They're forced to leave because of uh, um, conflict or crop failure or whatever. But they want to go home, just like most people would want to do. Most people who are refugees actually don't want to come to Canada. They want to go home. Most people uh, who are in that situation... Uh, only choose a country of third uh, 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 a third country as a destination, only by dint uh, of, of of lack of other options. So I think it's really important that we remember that when we think about uh, what uh, uh, what refugees and what so-called migrants uh, are facing uh, today. There's 70 million people who are internally displaced around the world. Uh, a very significant number are refugees. There's about 140 million people who need humanitarian assistance. And these numbers are the highest numbers since the end of World War II. And guess what? They're increasing. And they're increasing because of the kind of forces and factors that I'm describing. So There is a worsening dynamic between climate change uh, and fragile states. Um, so how we approach our uses of, of technology, our uses of innovation, our uses of, uh, of new tools... Uh, this actually matters. Now, a tool is one thing; is not going to solve all of these problems. But the tools that we choose and that we create have to be mindful of the circumstances in which they will be used, and they have to be mindful of the kind of consequences uh, that uh, they may or may not uh, create. And I'm just going to give you a couple of things, give you an example, a couple of ex- examples of things that uh, that that we're um, doing uh, at uh, the Doddle Institute for Global Health Research. So we're working on safe water optimization tools that combine biosensors, artificial intelligence, and digital platforms. And basically what we do is we analyze a a sample of water at a river, river site, for example. Uh, We can identify uh, a pattern of pathogenic contamination through AI. We can predict um, uh, the likelihood of uh, an epidemic, and we can uh, 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 prescribe to a person's mobile phone how much chlorine to put in your bucket, or for MSF, for the Red Cross, how much chlorine to put in your 500,000-liter bladder tank. This is not just an idea. We've actually done this. We're we're testing this prototype now uh, in the Cox Bazar in Bangladesh and also in Tanzania. It's much faster than I thought. I thought it would take us a couple of years, but we've done it in a year. Um, And uh, this is moving very, very quickly. Um, We're also looking at chemical water quality, electrolyte, mineral and contaminant uh, content of water uh, in climate change-affected regions. And it's very simple. It's not rocket science. With climate change, increased heat, water evaporates. With water evaporates, what remains in the water is increased concentration uh, of certain electrolytes, certain minerals, and certain contaminants. This has really profound implications. We've we've thought for many years uh, in terms of therapeutic feeding in famine situations... Um, we've never critically actually uh, analyzed this, but what we typically see is a spike in mortality at a certain point in the therapeutic feeding process, uh, especially for children. And so we've assembled a group of scientists uh, from around the world, uh, uh, nephrologists, uh, biochemists, hydrologists, uh, humanitarian uh, operational uh, experts, uh, to actually critically examine um, in a deep science uh, exploration the nature of uh, chemical water quality uh, in uh, situations of this kind, and we're rewriting uh, several uh, guidelines and then creating a, research, uh, a more advanced research agenda around that. We're also modelling the health impacts of climate change. We're doing this in Malawi, uh, looking at uh, meteorologic change and most especially drought and famine, uh, sorry, drought and flood, um, and their impacts on infectious disease, food security, disaster preparedness, and on health system viability. And we're using some fantastic modeling uh, technologies and as well drones and GIS systems to do that. And we're also doing that in a way that's community-based uh, and uses participatory community methods uh, to help us define the meaning of particular variables. Uh, and I can go into that in more detail if, if, uh, if you're interested. We're doing similar things in Bangladesh and also in uh, Paraguay. We're also using artificial intelligence natural language processing But a very elaborate uh, uh, program uh, uh, that is seeking to develop uh, new survey tools uh, for complex humanitarian emergency settings that we can use to do rapid needs assessments. Um, And uh, this shows great promise. Uh, We just published a paper in uh, uh, an IBM Journal of uh, um, Innovation uh, on this uh, and um, shows really great promise. And uh, uh, I'm quite excited about it. Um, We're also looking at the ethics. This came up several times today. Looking at the ethics and governance of data in complex humanitarian uh, emergencies. Um, I won't go into great detail, but in a situation of war or conflict, you have different bodies of law that apply, whether that's domestic or international. Uh, So in war, for example... International humanitarian law applies. Um, You also have multiple uh, uh, actors, both domestic and international, some of which are mandated in international law, i.e. are UN agencies, some of which aren't, are NGOs like MSF. They are operating; they're registered in different jurisdictions, and they're bound by different bodies and systems of law. And so when you enter into a space... Uh, where data is absolutely king and absolutely vital. And I understand what people are saying here. We need the data. We need the data. we need. I get it. But how is it governed? How is the patient protected? And especially in a situation, in my case, especially in a situation of war, where there are multiple intelligence services that are hacking your data and are using your data to target uh, uh, the, the people that they don't like. We're also looking at... Uh, we now just have a big project creating disaster and health emergency simulation research and training. Uh, and we're focusing... We're, our intention is to... This is new. This is not funded yet, but we're working on that. This is... Um, everything else is independently funded through NIH and CHR and various foundations and so on. But here, what we're looking to do is, um, is to create... Uh, first, a national focus, and within Canada, and then an international focus. And what we want to do is uh, create a, a data platform um, uh, uses big data, AI, and then properly whoops properly uh, illustrated uh, 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 analytics uh, for active decision making. Uh, around which we will um, create four scenarios. So I won't. Going through them in detail, but one of them is pandemic preparedness. We'll create four scenarios, and we will use formal and informal networks uh, to. Um, we'll train formal and informal networks around these scenarios, and what we know uh, from uh, disaster relief uh, and humanitarian assistance in situations of complexity, we know in fact that it's the informal networks that are most effective when formal systems break down. So, how do they work? How can you enable those networks? How can you empower those networks to be even more effective? Um, so that's the kind of thing that we're, that we're looking at. And, again, we're, the, the three values that drive this and all of the other things that I've talked about are equity, effectiveness, and excellence. We're also looking at a regulatory framework around Internet pharmacies. This is a huge deal uh, in terms of equity of access, in terms of quality assurance, uh, detection of counterfeit medicines, and also in terms of uh, uh, enabling or empowering the relationship, the therapeutic relationship between the patient, the doctor, and the pharmacist, and other healthcare professionals. Uh, This is seriously at risk, um, and uh, we need to create a regulatory system and structure that allows that to be not just preserved but maintained as the core of the therapeutic uh, uh, process uh, between patient and healthcare provider. And we're also finally looking at antibiotic resistance uh, as a a major threat uh, internationally. We've got a policy group uh, and a a research group that's focused specifically on governance um, uh, in global health uh, and policy and practice across uh, sectors to minimize the emergence of antibiotic resistance. So I'm going to close just by, again, coming back to this slide. Values matter. It's not simply landscape and river. Where we're going... Where that takes us, that's up to us. And our values and how we choose to articulate and use those values in our exploration of technology and practice are fundamental. And there you are. Thank you very much.
2: I uh, wanted to quickly thank Dr. Rabisky for that. That was excellent. And uh, while the chairs are being set up, bring on uh, Tim Powers and Anne McGrath, because I think the three of us are going to try and have a gossipy conversation about health and politics. And uh, Tessie, we'll let you know afterwards if it's off the record. By way of background, uh, Peter Cleary, I work for Santa's Health. Our firm is um, a consulting firm that just does health and life sciences, so I have a lot of fun doing health-related events, especially with being part of the 2020 family, and uh, I'm excited to be here today. I, I have worked in the federal government in the past, as well as the provincial government, working for uh, liberal health ministers federally and provincially. And why don't I just turn it over and, and run down the line and tell us a bit about yourself.
3: Okay. Is this on? Yes. I don't know why I'm always surprised when systems work. (laughs) Um, So my name is Anne McGrath, and I am uh, currently the National Director for the uh, Federal New Democrats. And I've been involved for a long, long time, uh, including uh, I've been a volunteer, I've been a campaign manager, I've been an organizer, I've been a candidate, um, uh, chief of staff. All sorts of different things. In the NDP, um, I was uh, Jack Layton's chief of staff um, uh, until he died, and was very involved in uh, everything. You know, kind of from the sort of early two thousands when I first got involved in his leadership campaign uh, um, uh, until the t- I was, and I was the campaign manager for the twenty fifteen uh, federal election campaign for the New Democrats, and then I went to Alberta. And worked as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Premier Rachel Notley and the NDP government there, which uh, I learned a lot doing that. It was my uh, one and only experience in government, um, and uh, it was uh, an opportunity not to be missed, and I'm very proud of all of the things that we were able to do there. I recently came back to Ottawa, and I'm now working as the National Director with Jigmeet Singh and the NDP.
4: Uh, I'm Tim Powers. I guess I'm here to represent the blue side of the fence. Though Some days the blue side of the fence doesn't know if I'm blue, green, orange, or pink, but that's all right. That makes life entertaining. Um, my uh, background, both in, in health care and in politics, I clearly you can tell from my boyish looks I was three when I started working for uh, the uh, recently deceased John Crosby uh, when he was a cabinet minister here in Ottawa, who interestingly... Uh, brought the medical care plan to Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, the first uh, public insurance, publicly insured health care plan in the province. I was not working with them then. I'm not that goddamn old. Um, in, the, in, I've worked in conservative politics for uh, for a long time. Uh, was around when uh, Stockwell Day put that stupid sign up uh, in the national debate that said no two tier health care uh, He was going to get a lot of health care that night when he came back after that debate um, in in the healthcare field i 've been a, a member of the board of trustees at uh, CAMH in Toronto have done a lot of work in the mental health arena, have worked for participation, and just to shake it all up and piss Ann off I'm a proud user of private health care so that'll make for a fun hour.
2: We'll talk about Maple in a couple minutes um, Why don't we start and work away towards health then? minority government. When's the next election going to be? Is it working right now? How is it different than uh, the minority governments of the past, whether it's under, under Harper or uh, provincially What's your take?
3: Well, I mean, I think that the popular wisdom is that it is a fairly stable minority parliament, if there is any such thing, and that the next election will be when the Liberals decide that they want to have one. Um, the the Bloc Quebecois is at their, I believe, their high water mark um, in terms of uh, uh, the seats that they have, and and they can, they appear to be not in any hurry to have an election. Um, so we're in a situation where there are, uh, you know, a, a number of parties have the balance of power, and at the moment uh, I don't believe that there is any uh, sense of urgency around having to work with the NDP uh, on on some of the issues that, uh, that we want to work on. That said, I have seen this uh, story before, and... Um, Back in 2004, uh, when there was a minority parliament, uh, I do remember uh, going with Jack to see Prime Minister Martin and being told, uh, go away, you're one seat short. Um, so uh, there was nothing in terms of that first uh, budget. But the second budget, when all of a sudden the numbers were shifting a little bit, there was an opportunity. And so there opportunities can arise during a, a minority parliament because of, you know, the old events, dear boy events. So things can happen um, that, that you're not expecting. And in that case, we were able to negotiate uh, a $4.6 billion um, basically to, to take it out of corporate tax cuts and put it into priorities uh, that, that we thought were important, like uh, Indigenous uh, housing, um, post-secondary education, uh, overseas development assistance, um, uh, you know, protection for workers when the companies go bankrupt, all of those kinds of things. So we were able to actually effect change in that parliament, even though we didn't necessarily have the seats uh, to be able to, 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 to actually uh, keep the government in place. But because of the th- way things developed, we were able to do that. So I believe that we need to be ready for the moment when the door opens and, uh, and the Liberal government feels that um, having NDP support would be important.
4: I, I think it 's I generally agree with that and i think it 's pretty stable right now it 's very different than it was in the previous three minority governments of uh, since two thousand uh, when elections were uh, closer to the horizon than they are now. Uh, the Conservative Party is having its uh, decade-annual um, identity crisis, uh, and who knows how that will play out. You can see, instead of weighty national debates, the interim leader focuses on paw patrol and clickbait as opposed <laughs> to uh, dealing with the major challenges of the day. If I sound bitter, I probably need therapy this afternoon. Um, uh, so, I, I, you know, and I, I, I think... The Liberals, uh, you would know better, Peter, as would others in, in this room, are, are, have a strong minority at the moment. They're not in a rush to go to the, electra- to, the, to the polls. So I think we're steady for a while. But I think in the arena of health care, uh, with the exception of perhaps indigenous uh, health care and investment uh, and the agreement expiration that's coming up, not much significant will get done.
2: I think there's a marked difference when uh, Dalton McGuinty won his minority government in 2011. The day after he came out and said we have a major minority, and it set a, we, it set a tone right away that we're going to govern like a majority government. And I think that that was a mistake. Upon reflection, uh, and I think this government's done well because they uh, they they did lose the majority and they've acted like they lost the majority, especially in those first couple weeks. Um, and they sent out some of their stronger performers to try and put out some brush fires, especially as we constantly see you know, uh, Western Canada and, and consternation in Western Canada ebbs and flows when it comes into the media cycle. But they're, I, th- I think they've been trying to tamper that down, whether or not it's going to be successful th- for the long run. But it's, I, think, I think it'll come back once other news stories uh, move out of the way. But for the time being, I think they've been governing like they have a minority government.
4: But things can happen. I mean, most everybody in this room will be familiar with the oft-trafficked rumor, and God, in this city, uh, you, can get, you get less rumors on the 417, uh, although it's so slow up there you wouldn't know it, but uh, uh, that the prime minister, the current prime minister may not want to serve out his term. If something like that were to happen... That changes the dynamic significantly, and that, as Ann pointed out in the 05-06 or oh five minority with Chuck Cadman and the Layton deal and all of that, that changed the dynamic very, very quickly. So today's strong could be tomorrow's weak.
2: Do you think he'll run again?
4: <laughs> Better people to ask in this room than me. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I look at the. I, I think the job is more taxing than it's ever been. Uh, and it doesn't matter how good you are or how committed you are. But even the last two weeks um, for any leader, regardless of their political stripe, is just exhausting and more complex, I would argue, than it's, than it's ever been. Um, and the, the environment is more unforgiving. I wouldn't be surprised if he decided he'd he'd had enough and who could blame him. But uh, maybe he also feels because of the issues around uh, indigenous reconciliation, the challenges with resource-based development, that he doesn't want to leave until more is done. I I don't know. Yeah, I mean...
3: I'm also the wrong person to ask this, so he's probably not going to consult with me on any of this. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's it's a it's a really tough job. Obviously, it may not be, it may be tougher than he felt like he had signed up for. Um, I I actually think we are at a bit of a turning point right now with uh, respect to uh, you know I think Indigenous youth are 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 really you know the kind of the promise of Idle No More I think is beginning to be realized, and um, you know it's it's going to be a tough situation for the next little while. And I, and, I, and I think that uh, popular political wisdom always is that you don't put your leader in a situation like that. But, the, but I believe there's a requirement for that right now. So that's a very difficult situation for him to be in.
2: Well, in 2020 alone, uh, you know, wake up and you're dealing with a crisis in the Middle East. You're dealing with uh, the outbreak of coronavirus and you're dealing with uh, uh, protests across the country back to back to back. And in that context, you have an incredibly detailed health mandate. Mm-hmm. Does the government you know are they putting any time to it right now? are they going to get around to it? will they will do they even have the capacity to do the things they said
3: that they were going to do Well, they have a looming pandemic uh, they have uh, provinces that ha- where the the uh, The kind of the the government, the structures in those provinces have changed substantially um, uh, in in the in the last little while. So they don't have, you know, kind of willing partners in the provinces, for the most part. Um, And uh, I think there's probably internal dynamics around uh, how to proceed with some of the things like the, the, you know, the health accords and the and and the the funding. I mean, the, the provinces are basically saying we don't want to talk about. Pharma care, dental care you know uh, all of these things until we get uh, deals on on the accords on the actual health care spending i think I think they 're right about that in some ways, but um, uh, I, I think it's also a, it can be it can become a convenient excuse for not dealing, with, uh, not dealing with the provinces and not moving these things forward. And, of course, the concern, you know, w- one of the things I think that is important in all of this is that Abacus actually did some polling uh, following the election mm-hmm. that showed that uh, a majority of Canadians believe that the Liberals should work with the NDP on the mm-hmm. priorities that we put forward in that, in that election campaign. And, importantly, a very large majority of both NDP voters and Liberal voters um, uh, support that
4: yeah, the only thing I would, would add and pick uh, up on a point Anne made is it's, health is often the second department of finance. Yeah. And uh, I, I think the financial responsibilities and requirements of the Federal Department of Health are going to be the ones that are continue to be most taxed by the provinces wanting to get that deal done and, and opt or, or managed in, in, in the right way. The actual business of healing and creating programs or investing in proper programs, it's a bit like Indigenous reconciliation. There are so many different challenges that one fix does not set off a domino effect and improve the entire system. You and I were talking about mental health uh, earlier, and I think this government, to to its credit, the, the previous government before it, every government has recognized now they need to spend money on, on mental health. But they haven't gone from recognizing, and, and this is they being all governments, that they need to spend money on mental health to actually, what are the real investments we need to make in the system? So again, back to the finance side, the money will be there, but does the overall system of care, uh, do the health outcomes improve? Still, tons of work to be done on that front, and and no one government, no one minister should be expected to be able to make any significant dent in a very short period of time.
3: Well, I think you're right about that. About the, because I mean, the last healthcare accord meeting in Ottawa was uh, December of I want to say 2018. Yeah, it's been a while and I was at that for the for the Alberta government and it was hosted by it was it was finance ministers and health ministers and hosted by the finance minister and the health minister. So it was Bill Morneau and Jane Philpot at the time and it was I have to say from my perspective it was obvious to me that that there was not going to be a health accord coming out of that meeting. It was set up to... It looked to me like it was set up to fail. Um, And and then what happened after that was, basically, they just sat back and waited for the provinces to capitulate. And it started to happen. So any kind of united front that had happened at the meeting quickly uh, dissolved. And then it was... By the end, it was like a race to see who could get to the microphone next to say that they were going to sign on.
2: So this is interesting, because I was in that room as well, too, sitting on the other side. And it was... Uh, it was a challenging one to go into because even as a staffer, like, you don't walk into it wanting something not to work, wanting it to fail. And I remember all of us even talking with provincial colleagues that I knew, we were all at a loss because it was, it was almost, it was, felt like it was a foregone conclusion before we even started. And there wasn't really a conversation we could have with any of our ministers to change the track that was on. You had a media cycle that was pushing it. You had... Uh, you know, and at the end of the day, you had a federal government at that time that were not putting the money forward in terms of what they'd want to invest, and this is what's going to happen with pharmacare as well too. It's a chicken and the egg. You know, do we do we come up with the model of what we want to do, and then figure out how we pay for it? And provinces obviously would not want to go for that because, as you said, they'll be stuck holding the bag. Or does the federal government come out and say, "This is how much money we're willing to put to it. Let's talk about how we go forward and do it." And that's something that you could probably never get, you know, finance officials to go out and say. And I, and I fundamentally believe if it was exactly how, how you described, which is this is a, a federal announcement that we are investing this into provinces, call it an announcement, don't call it a health accord, and don't say you're negotiating. The moment we say it's a health accord, it implies something different. And that's not what this felt like at the time. Sure, you can negotiate, uh, you know, what the principles are for tracking outcomes and success, That's different than negotiating how much money are we going to get and what are we going to spend it on. And as we lead into Pharmacare, go to the liberal platform and how they framed up a discussion around Pharmacare like they framed up the health accord, it makes me wonder if we're about to just go through the exact same process again and if we're going to have those same types of meetings or is there something different or is there legislation that's going to be done to force it? Um, I don't know. I would, I, I'd be curious in your thoughts.
4: But you're still, sorry, Anna, you're still dealing with, and again, this is not to be neg- unnecessarily critical of the politicians, you're still dealing with politicians who get elected by deriving uh, uh, the impact and import they believe the public has on the symbolism of the system. Yeah. Free health care, um, high quality care, it's all got to be there. Not one politician at the federal level in this country yet is prepared, and I don't blame them, to have a conversation about how the whole system has to go from reacting and treating to wellness prevention and the like. Look at just what happened in New Brunswick a week and a half ago. Blaine Higgs, elected minority government fiscal conservative, threatened to shut down six emergency rooms in six uh, communities uh, he, had to, he had to recant right away. One, his deputy premier resigned, another did, not because it wasn't a smart decision, and there were probably four people in each of those communities on a, any night that went to those emergency rooms, but because it was so much a symbol of what those emergency rooms and those hospitals meant to that community, you couldn't deal with reality. You had to deal with the symbols, and we got to get past the symbols.
3: Well, it's the same with Pharmacare. I mean, you know, it's, it's part of it is, is deciding what we mean when we say Pharmacare, right? So that's a big part of It's like, are, are we talking about, you know, even just the debate around, I've talked to some people in the healthcare field, and they talk about universal uh, Pharmacare. And uh, when they talk about it, I feel like one of those characters from The Princess Bride, you know, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Yeah. Because they're not Definitely. talking about universal system the way right. that I think about universal. Uh, they're, they are talking about a fill-in-the-gaps model. And 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 believe that that's universal. I don't believe that's universal. So even just getting getting agreement on what we're talking about when we talk about pharmacare, I think, is going to be a challenge.
2: And when this is where we start getting into the well, how prescriptive can the federal government be? So uh, when we go back to those health accords, the federal government said we want to talk about mental health and home care, and we want to talk about sorry, mental health and addictions and home care and right. community care. Uh, and even as part of you know those agreements there had to be some level of bilateral because each province had, or territory, still had something unique in their jurisdiction that they needed to work on. So as we think about pharmacare, sure there's pharmacare, but if you listen to Christine Elliott, she talks about the rising cost of drugs for rare diseases as part of their budget line as being a priority for their province. And other, other provinces have, you know, similar but different challenges in Atlantic Canada. It's probably access to family doctors, especially in rural areas. So how does the federal government engage in a conversation about pharmacare in the context of all these provinces with very different priorities?
3: Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, because even when, uh, you know, often... Different provinces take a different position on these things because of their demographics, right? So in the Atlantic, where there's more of an aging population, uh, there are different pressures on that system. In, in, in Alberta, where I was, we had a lot more industrial, uh, industrial accidents. We had a younger population, uh, a larger indigenous population. So there were different health challenges. So, you, it, so the model has to be one that is, um, I think, has kind of uh, overarching values um, and some adjustments in how in and how, uh, how it gets applied
4: yeah, it, it, that that would be the ideal version, but I still think it comes down unfortunately to you write the check and you tell them how the check 's going to be spent they 'll invariably take the check because they need the check uh, and uh, hopefully after they have uh, had the money injected into their system and seen some utility. Uh, and some outcomes from all of that, then it may be easier to force an accord. But the, the, the country is so vast and so so different right now. And, you know, the demography in Newfoundland and Labrador is not the demography in, uh, in Toronto and Vancouver. And the health needs of the system are not. The tax base is shrinking. Good luck trying to get. Not that it's not a laudable thing to do, a universal uh, agreement from all ten provinces and territories and all of this. I foresee it being extremely difficult.
2: What's the political risk of not getting Pharmacare done? And I'll use, uh, I'll use the example of electoral reform uh, from the last mandate. In 2015, you could argue that the Liberals took a good number of votes from the NDP because they were actually putting forth some policies that the NDP traditionally has been supporting. And they went, they're like, great, the Liberals are going to get it done. We supported them. When I was going door-to-door last election... I was in Port Hope, Ontario, and if anybody knows where Port Hope is, uh, it is a it is a like this microclimate of a Toronto community. I, that's probably the best way I can describe it. And I remember going door to door, and I couldn't believe it because I only popped in for a, you know a couple weekends because I'm I'm from there. And when I went there, I went door to door, and I, one person after another is saying, "We're not voting for you this time because you did not get electoral reform done." And I would say, nationally speaking. I don't think that was a big issue, but it, it it had a big enough role that in some of the ridings that the Liberals needed to keep a majority, they lost it. Will PharmaCare have a similar impact? Is there a political is there a political concern here, or some of these PT dynamics will it you know will it make it easy if the the Liberals
3: don't get it done? Well, there's for sure an accumulated risk. I mean, I, I also heard that from uh, on electoral reform, and there comes a point when people. Um, uh, you know, I, I always feel like it 's like Lucy in the football right <laughs> uh, it, it's, There comes a point where people get tired of lining up to kick the football and having it snatched away um, so so I, I think there is an accumulated risk and and I think that you know there's a, there is a, it, it probably wasn 't a significant electoral uh, um, uh, electorally damaging for them in the last campaign, obviously, although they did lose lose the majority but the, but then, if they also don 't get pharmacare done, I think. My own feeling on what's happening right now is that um, uh, what they will have to do and, and uh, we will do everything we can to stop them from doing this is blame the provinces.
4: Yeah, I, I think, again, it depends what pool you're fishing from and what lake in the country you're looking to get the votes from. In certain parts of the country, it'll be challenging uh, if, the, if the Liberal government doesn't deliver on Pharmacare. But in other parts of the country, Pharmacare would be the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th item on the list because there are more immediate issues that require government investment in the view of many of the constituents. So I think part of it will also depend on the skill of the new Democrats, as Anne has just outlined, framing it up as another broken promise and having people believe, particularly that pool of voters who prioritize the issue, that if the NDP were able to advance its own efforts, that something would happen. But I don't believe it will be the one issue that will sink the liberal government not if it if it is not achieved
2: is are there um i i would I, just because we haven't really talked about the conservative perspective are there health policies that the it will keep going on right, right yeah. yeah so last election i think you know the health platform from the uh, from the sheer guys came out and it was i think 1.5 billion for diagnostic imaging machines which kind of came out of left field it just to me it felt like it was just a it was just something so that they had a health platform, whether or not it was meaningful, but it went back to their traditional place of provinces deliver health care. We're not getting involved. You have the Canada health transfer. There you go. Is there, is there a place for the conservatives in health care a minority government and under a new leader?
4: You've missed the captivating debate about the reform of the health care system in the right. early days of the PC or conservative leadership race. Right. wow. I'm going to have to get you those videotapes. They're <laughs> fantastic. That's how dated I am. They're videotapes. They're not shareable videos. Um, no it's the quick answer I mean I think conservative approach to this is still to try and stay out of uh, out of the weeds it's very much the Flaherty approach here's the check you guys go sort it out uh, they have though taken sorties into different diseases um, mental health being one of them uh, funding for autism at a certain level different cancer strategies I think you know that this really gets into the micro targeting that that all parties do, but among the Conservatives, the health strategy, at least in the past, was driven by where there were large cohorts of voters who had an understanding, a connection to a particular health and wellness issue that they could invest in and maybe make both a meaningful public relations difference and a a meaningful outcome difference. I don't see the political savvy uh, existing in the Conservative Party or in any other party at the moment to try and elevate the debate to entire systematic reform, which is where it really needs to go. So,
3: if, Oh, sorry, Anne, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, public health care and the expansion of public health care in keeping with the Canada Health Act absolutely seizes the imagination, the hearts, the minds of NDP voters and Liberal voters. Um, uh, and, and, I mean, we see it in polling. We've seen it in our history. I, I mean, I even, you know, like... When we're fundraising, I hear it from our supporters. Right, they are they are so keen to see uh, improvements to the healthcare system that are consistent with um, with the public with the the, the Health Act.
4: But let me go back to the – you hit a real excellent point, though, Peter, on the equipment and the investment in the, the equipment. give you a very specific example that happened recently. I got invited to a meeting here in Ottawa with the provincial minister of health, and it was a number of people uh, who sat down with her who were interested in doing work in the mental health sphere. Anyway, a radiologist from, uh, from the Ottawa hospital was there uh, and talking to the minister, and it was a broad conversation, and she made the point that they were short a number of CT machines – and she talked about um, if I had one more CT machine, I could bring in X hundred of people uh, over the course of the week, and this would diminish the, the wait list. So when conservatives hear that, they see and sense an immediate political opportunity because the story, we all, stories we all read, and wherever, whatever place we read them, is wait list, wait list, wait list, wait times. We all know about wait times. We all know people who need help there. So instead of roads and bridges. You know, CAT scans and MRIs are uh, an equal chicken in every pot for a conservative politician nowadays in the health arena. What a bunch of mixed metaphors there.
2: So how are the Liberals going to approach the budget then? It's um, so the first budget minority government. Uh, if, if I recall under um, Dalton McGuinty's first minority government budget, we were directed at one point to find some private members' bills from the opposition that were basically the direction was find the least offensive bills that can be adopted into government legislation and make it happen. Uh, and that way they could show that they were reaching across the aisle and doing, doing things that other parties wanted. Do we see this government doing that on health? Are they going to do that? Will they reach across the aisle to the conservatives or are they just going to try and uh, get something through with the support of the bloc?
3: I think they will uh, count on the block. I, I, don't think that, I don't see any movement towards, uh, well, for one thing, uh, I think they can see, and, and in all, you know, kind of, um, you know, without slagging the Conservatives or anything like that.
4: But oh, and we've known each other long <laughs> enough? Go for it.
3: I mean, everybody can see that there's a bit of disarray, so there's no need there's no need to uh, approach the Conservatives. Uh, in terms of the numbers, there's not much of a need. Uh, I, I think there is a need to approach the NDP, but I don't think that they know that, and I don't think that they see that. Um, and all they need to do is get the block on side, and the block has already shown that, that, that they will twist themselves into pretzel shapes to support this government.
2: Um, stakeholders, Canadians, how is this government going to navigate... Um, on health specifically, I should say. So, and we'll move on from Pharmacare and talk about something else after this. But on Pharmacare, you have a very dynamic stakeholder environment and you have a very dynamic um, uh, group of provinces right now with varying degrees of opinions. And you also have Canadians who, to your point, don't necessarily understand or they might have a different viewpoint of what what someone might mean uh, uh, when they say Pharmacare. How will this government navigate that web, especially when you're dealing with very active stakeholders on the union side, on the uh, pharmaceutical front, on, uh, on uh, the health charity front? How does, how does the government rectify all of these very active, strong stakeholder concerns that are based in Ottawa, talk, to, or talk around the provinces to uh, Canadians while not getting too much of a butt-kicking from, Cana- uh, from provinces? Is it it possible? Is it a a lost fight from the get-go?
3: Well, I think it is possible, but it does require being very, very committed and determined and focused and clear in your communication. And I think that even uh, provinces that have elected um, conservative governments that aren't really that interested in this, uh, they're... I think this is something that Canadians do want. I mean, Canadians see healthcare as we all know as a, as a, as a value, uh, which is kind of odd in a way uh, to think of it as a value, but it is. It's a value, and I think that they want to see it improved. And pharmacare is the logical next place. I would argue dental care as well, but and mental health care. There's lots of things, but they want it. They want it. They want it maintained and strong, and they want it improved, and, and I think they want it in line with certain principles. So um, I think that there is an opportunity, I personally think there's an opportunity for them to actually be a bit bold and uh, and to push through. I don't think they're going to do it, though, to be honest.
4: I, I think Anne hits on a key debate point. Certainly there are many Democrats who would rightly, and respect Anne tremendously, who would view... Our healthcare system as uh, something that represents Canadian values at least in what it's supposed to be and how Tommy Douglas built it, but I think equally there are new cohorts of of younger voters and others who view it as a service as any other uh, and they want it to work. Now what does that look like and what does that mean? Uh, Is it driven around access? Is it driven around a hybrid system? We still cater, we being political parties, to those who view it as a value and and, and those who use the system more often, so the older demographic of people. But even then, I think you would find views are changing around service and provision and are we following a dream that doesn't work anymore. To answer your your question, I think that the Liberal government, though, has an opportunity. If they want to weave and bob out of this right now because they can't find an accord and a check is the easiest answer, they have a tremendous opportunity to do that because the Prime Minister can rightly claim and, and I think stakeholders would understand we need to deal with the immediate challenges of our other priorities, at least in this budget, around reconciliation, around energy. I don't think it would come as a great surprise to some if pharmacare were parked for a little while. Again, is there a political price for that? No. Uh, yeah, You would know better than I, but I think they, have, they could buy themselves another 12 months here if they played it right, politically, whether that's the right thing to do or not. Uh, who knows?
3: Well, I would argue it's been working for them for a long time. I mean, yeah, 20 years you know, I mean, you know, it, the, I, I think just reannouncing the 1993 Red Book promises <laughs> has been working. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, think, I, I, mean I, I hope that at a certain point it doesn't, but it has been.
2: I should ask, and I don't know if I'm allowed doing this, but I'll ask for forgiveness later. Does anybody have any questions kind of on the topic of, of this on pharmacare, on PT relations? Please feel free to just say them. I think we're a small enough room. Uh, you're more than welcome to. Otherwise, we'll uh, we'll change gears and talk a little bit about pandemics because I think that we're supposed to. Um, so right now, and, and this kind of ties back to where we are where we coming from, you're dealing, you know, this government has had to deal with a significant number of crises in a very short period of time. We have all probably in our own way dealt with some level of crisis or pandemic as a staffer or as an individual giving advice to people dealing with it. Is, is this government responding well right now? Do you, do you have a sense of where this is, is, this is going and, and, and where it could go? And how does the government... Um, why don't we just start with that, actually?
3: Well, I thought they were out of the gate with it pretty, pretty, you know, pretty well. I mean, I, I thought it was good. Uh, and then I feel like they dropped the ball I feel like they um, why I think probably partly it's a it's bandwidth uh, a, a bandwidth problem. I mean, there's just so much going on, and uh, probably um, as in most situations like this, uh, you get a lot of contradictory advice, and um, uh, I think and there is a there is a big communications role for the leadership, I think. Uh, that's almost one of the biggest things that they do, right? So in, 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 in you know, like I was involved in um, the Premier's office when we had the wildfire in Fort McMurray. And, uh, um, you know, obviously you want to be out of the way of the emergency personnel, the firefighters. You're not, you know, you're not out there doing that work. Um, and, but you do have a big role to play in communicating with the public, in being a steady, uh, you know, in being involved on a daily basis with, with it. And I, I personally feel like this particular government is not great at kind of um, staying on top of something. Um, uh, just in in my experience with them, both from the provincial level and and now back here in Ottawa again, they have a hard time sort of staying on top of the big files. They they, they start out well or not, uh, but for sure don't keep going on on the big ones.
4: Yeah, it's kind of like the bright, shiny object theory of political communication. Sometimes you just get obsessed with that, then you move on to the next bright, shiny object. I do think, uh, as Anne said, they started off well. In fairness to them, though, I, I, I think, you know, obviously other... Events, events, dear man. Events intervened, and uh, I think the prime minister did lead off his news conference last week by starting with the pandemic, or he started with Iran, then he went to the pandemic. Uh, but I, I think the global media. while we have been dealing with blockades and tech, and the global media has become so focused on this issue now. It's even entering into the American presidential cycle, and if you're in that cycle and you're still talking about coronavirus, don't worry, Donald Trump says it's not an issue, so we're all fine. But uh, uh, then it's very hard for little old Canada, if you're not on top of it, to get out there. As I said to you, Peter, I'm dealing with this in a uh, real-time perspective right now because in another life, uh, I run Rugby Canada. We have our biggest international event next week in Vancouver, a world rugby tournament where we host 16 nations from around the world. Two of our sister tournaments were cancelled in uh, Hong Kong and in Singapore. Uh, One of our sister tournaments is happening in Los Angeles this weekend. But now, because uh, there have been 10 uh, coronavirus outbreak patients in British Columbia and elsewhere, we are starting to hear a lot of concern because of the president's comments. We're hearing a lot of concern. There's a real economic impact for us. We make millions of dollars next weekend. If that tournament is cancelled... Uh, and, uh, and, and or delayed in any way, it imperils our organization significantly. That's from a self-interested perspective. We now probably are going to have to spend more money, which is fine, to ensure that people going into the facility, because it's at BC Place Stadium, we have 40,000 people there on the day, are properly informed uh, that there's sanitizer, and, and all of those things there, new additional costs, direct impact on the economy. The thing, though, I'm finding most is individual uncertainty. I got a note before I came here from a member of our board saying, as often happens in any of our lives, I was talking to so-and-so today and he was thinking of going to Vancouver to the tournament, but he's worried about the coronavirus. Shouldn't be. He's going from Alberta to Vancouver, traveling domestically. Major league sport events have happened. The Canucks play, the soccer team plays, but you can't account for people's own rationality or irrationality and that to Anne's point and I'll shut up there is what makes it really hard to communicate because when it becomes about my health my well-being my safety um, then you're you're in a whole new dimension doesn't matter how often you communicate and what you say you have to be able to connect with people on an empathetic level that you get their fear
3: well and if I could just add I think it's very important for Canada have to have a seat on the Security Council but that was very jarring I think to have the prime minister and that group uh, spending a week in Africa and then coming back for 24 hours and then going off to the Caribbean, um, you know, luckily did not end up going to the Caribbean. But it just seemed so jarring in the context of, you know, what's happening, what's happening with respect to the the, the pandemic, with respect to the Wet'suwet'en issue. Like, it just seemed really, really out of touch,
4: can I just, just, I just want to hit the point, it, even at a finer levels, because it, it gets to that bright, shiny object uh, and how it comes into a personal dimension. So prior to this tournament happening, our, a lot of our people were really hoping Prince Harry and Meghan Markle would go, because Prince Harry's the patron of rugby football in the United Kingdom. And there was so much excitement and enthusiasm and, and energy about trying to attract them. Now it's swung all the way over to God. What are we going to do? Are we ready? How are we going to deal with people who are worried and concerned? And are, are people going to be in danger? And is there going to be an economic loss? And it happened just like that.
2: I, I wanted to I wanted to say I'd never met a chief medical officer that I that I haven't liked. And when I was in Ontario, we dealt with H1N1. Dr. Arlene King was there. Absolutely phenomenal. And there is a role for political staff in dealing with these sort of situations. And I don't think people really realize how involved political staff are on a day-to-day, even with little things. If you listen to the Hurley-Burley, I suggested Jenny Byrne told a really great story about her yeah. perspective dealing with H1N1 and and uh, how Dr. Butler need to take off his Disney tie and put on something more appropriate. But, I mean, like, those things, and also anybody who knows who he is probably would have been totally fine with it. But the rest of Canada might have been a little bit confused. But there are, there are daily interactions that you have with uh, these uh, professionals and experts in uh, in the roles that they 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 have. What I'm wondering now is because there's so much news, because there's so much happening every single day, and the media cycle is just so completely uh, dominated. Yesterday, for instance, I read it on Twitter. Doctor Tam uh, said, "So you know what? You know our window to closing this and containing this is 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 it's it's it's, it's shutting." Uh, This is no longer a question about containment, but how do we delay this so we can get through the seasonal flu so our healthcare system can absorb the impact if coronavirus does spread more broadly in Canada? And you should do things like have your prescriptions uh, last in your home for a week, do you have enough food, all those sorts of things. That's a really serious message. And I'm wondering, did did that punch its way through?
4: But then you had Dick Pound saying the Tokyo Games could be canceled. Right. I I tell you, that got a hell of a lot more airtime. And a lot more people understand that the Olympics is the biggest televised sporting event in the world. And they're, pardon my language, I do have to swear, I'm from Newfoundland. No, not all Newfoundlanders swear, by the way, but it's like, holy shit, the Olympics could be canceled? When were the Olympics canceled before? For world wars. How many people died in those world wars? Millions of people. Doesn't take a big leap of the human conscious to go there. I, I heard a portion of Dr. Tam's message. I could not stop seeing Dick's comments, which are, are fair and, and reasonable, but in the in the environment, will be interpreted in a whole other way.
2: I think I think the political responsibility, kind of going back to what I was thinking before, it's it's incumbent on the government to amplify what Dr. Tam is saying. So they might not have the direct role to come up with that advice, but it is their job to make sure that Canadians actually hear that advice and heed that advice.
3: Well, and I think you have to, I mean, on these big, big issues, you do have to be really, really focused and clear. And you have to have somebody kind of minding the shop on all of the other issues, for sure. But then the the kind of the core... Brain trust really has to be focused on these things. I mean, you remember? I mean, it's not maybe appropriate to this, but like the Phoenix pay system, which I thought was a crisis. Uh, you know, people not getting paid, still is getting, yeah, getting overpaid, getting underpaid. For me, being overpaid would actually be more of a problem because you'd spend it. But uh, but the, but the whole thing was a crisis, and I remember thinking because um, I was working in the government of Alberta while this was a big part of this was going on, and I remember thinking because I worked with Rachel Notley. She would not let she probably would not let us leave our office before there was a solution to that. I would probably have spent you know every night writing out checks personally uh, to, to <laughs> she she just wouldn 't allow that to happen. She was just that kind of leader like and it 's like you just stay focused on it and you get a, and i remember it 's like on something like that there 's a daily briefing there 's a daily uh, communications plan there 's a daily like i feel like sometimes on these things. It, there's something big at the beginning, and then kind of a few days goes by without anybody even noticing that it's still going on.
2: Uh, I should say we'll wrap up here in a in a couple of minutes. So if you have any questions, lock and load them and, and head to the microphone. But I was, or handed out. I, I was. I was just going to ask, kind of as a as a rounding out question. You know, we have this minority government that needs to achieve a lot to show that they can, or earn another majority of government. Are to your point about the need to focus? Are they trying to do? too much? Are their mandate letters too aggressive? Is that a fair uh, question or statement?
3: Well, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of focus. Like I said, it feels like there's a a kind of a big outburst of energy on some of these things. And then it's off to Africa to try and get a Security Council seat. Uh, Or it's, you know, whatever the next thing is. I think right now there are some clear things that are you know, crises. They are crises. And I think that that's what they should be focused on.
4: And as I said earlier, I think events have intervened. Uh, so what you need to have is the discipline to tack back at the right time or use the events to your particular uh, advantage. I would hardly be surprised if uh, the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister and, and others soon announced that they were going to you know, have a, a proper national consultation on a energy environment framework and the like and how they set the budget up. I think the budget is going to be key, as it often is, to reframing and reasserting uh, agenda setting for the government? I
2: think it's really easy when you're in the government, when you have events like this, to... to, get to lost. You just get lost because everybody is working on that crisis. And the, the key to any successful government is being able to isolate a number of people to deal with the crisis while you have other people deal with what you need to get uh, get done. And very briefly, when I was in... Ontario, we, we dealt with for a very long time the Orange Air Ambulance um, crisis. And that was a slow drip every single day of something new coming out. And it was a very challenging thing to stay on top of. But I was designated, me and a number of other people, we were designated, this is your job. You're not, you're not involved in rolling out transformation to the health system because we need a bunch of other people who can do that. So we don't get stuck in the mud. We keep our government moving forward, but we also address the things that we need to address.
5: I was wondering if I could ask a question about innovation policy in the federal government. Sure. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. The, uh, the, f- uh, the federal government has several roles in 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 healthcare, but one of one of which uh, which I don't think is contained in, in the Canada Health Act is facilitating uh, uh, the uh, transfer of ideas uh, that are developed in provincial systems that might be good and useful elsewhere. And helping create the institutional framework where that uh, can be facilitated, um, one way in which this was uh, uh, was done in the past is through networks of centers of excellence, several of which had uh, 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 healthcare uh, foci. Uh, another special one is uh, 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 a program which is unique in the world uh, uh, the Canadian uh, Donation and Transplant Research uh, program, which uh, uh, is in its second three-year mandate, uh, second year of its second year uh, of its uh, well three-year mandate. Um, now, there's the Network of Center of Excellence program has been uh, abandoned. I don't know; I haven't kept up as to whether it's been replaced by anything. Uh, but I was wondering if you had any uh, comments about the uh, uh, about the structural role of the federal government in facilitating uh, the spread of good ideas across the country.
4: I guess the federal government would say now a version of the Center of Excellence program, and it would seem focused more on innovation, but on technological innovation, but that obviously has healthcare implications, are the super clusters. Uh, great name. Um, terrible rhyme you can make off of it. Uh, but I, in certain jurisdictions, I think in the Pacific, the super cluster is working very well. In the Atlantic, it's not for sure, I agree with you, the federal government has a role in fostering innovation. But when you say government's fostering innovation, at least on the conservative side, people start to laugh because it's kind of oxymoronic. I think where the government can be helpful is in uh, advancing different private solutions into a federal space. Uh, I, I know of one example right now in the mental health arena for uh, for many of you who know of this uh, area, where cognitive therapy, uh, which is pretty common, you go back to Freud, cognitive therapy, CBT as it's called, is now being done electronically. Uh, the cost of doing that is much more effective than actually going to see a trained cognitive behavioral therapist or a psychiatrist. Um, I know people are trying to get the federal government to buy that, buy different versions of that system. For uh, different areas of, of responsibility. That's an area, for example, where I believe innovation, encouraged by the private sector, empowered by the public sector, could be helpful. But most certainly it has a role, but it's not the sole participant.
3: I think the federal government does have a role to play in this and, and and needs to, you know, and I think it probably is primarily at the moment anyway through the, the superclusters. But I think that the problem, again, I mean, you know, to keep coming back to it is some of the provinces um, have really stepped back yep. uh, on, on this. And, uh, you know, are, are, they've stepped back from uh, innovation, from AI, from uh, um, from participation, even in federal in federal provincial uh, centers around this, so I think that's again gets back to the whole issue of the federal provincial relationships.
2: I think the feds are a little bit confused. Um, so uh, you have half a billion dollars going to pan Canadian health organizations, PG4A, and uh, Dr. Danielle Martin did a review of that, which I would argue was just a precursor to how do you establish these things to fit with a pharmacare regime. I I don't think there is much of a focus in terms of how those agencies are working to help um, improve or access or amplify economic development opportunities in provinces, even though they are supposed to be there to support PT priorities in health. And if PTs start articulating that that is one, maybe there is some work they can do. But this kind of leads me to um, saying, I don't think Health Canada and I said uh, see eye to eye in, in the way they probably need to. And I'll use one very specific example uh, if you look at the government's messaging uh, from health on drug prices, they say, we have the second highest uh, drug prices in the world, and that needs to change. If you go to ISED's website, they use the exact same stat with different framing. I believe the line is, and it's probably still up there, we don't have the highest drug prices in the world. We're a great country. <laughs> so HealthCan and said use the very same information but have two very different spins depending their objective – and I think that is just one small example of the fact that I think I said and health need to work to figure out how they're going to be on the same page in the same government, even though they do have that tension that will always exist between economic development and oversight and health. Uh, but there is a bit of a common, uh, common uh, framing that should, should be used, and you have a half a billion bucks that's already being put into federal agencies to support PT priorities, and how are they appropriately using that, and they haven't figured out how they're going to renew those yet.
3: I also wondered if there was an attempt through like the supercluster stuff to, uh, to, to try and minimize pressure on the federal government. So, uh, for instance, it was kind of astonishing to me that the energy and clean tech uh, supercluster was not located in Alberta. It just didn't make any sense.
4: Quick question on uh, building consensus around any number of things. Uh, this morning we had a wonderful presentation from Mustafa that was fact-based. You know, this is the percentage of... You know, transfer that's going to the provinces from the federal government. here are the costs associated with each of these things. I'm not sure, though that in the cut and thrust of the House of Commons, we could get people to even agree on that, right? There would always be some nuance to it. But uh, you know, Peter was kind of leading to this, but what what do you think in the area of health care or the three Ps that you're dealing with is the one area that has the highest likelihood of getting agreement across parties? Can you agree on anything? I guess this is my point. Um.
2: Who can disagree with cutting a check to the provinces? <laughs> mm-hmm. At its at its at its most basic function, everybody will fundamentally agree to that. And I don't think you'll see a party say we're going to take that money back, whatever whatever a government stripe agrees to. Beyond that,
3: as it relates to health, I don't know. I think. Uh, I think. Well, I mean, you know, in, in health care, I don't see a lot because I think there's not a lot of agreement on, I mean, we have a fundamental disagreement right now on what, you know, on what universal means, the, the nature of single payer. On, on dental care, we're, you know, like, we, like we're just not getting there on a lot of these things. So I don't see it in healthcare. Perhaps there's been a bit on trade. Uh, a bit more movement on trade, I think, in the last little while, so there are some areas i don 't see a lot of it in healthcare right now because uh, I think that the pressures on i think the pressures on the government from so many different areas mean that they can 't settle on something, and I think they have to, even if it doesn 't mean consensus like sometimes you move things through by not having consensus
4: well, and uh, just the only thing I would add to the conversation is uh, the government has a perfect storm among um, Disease advocates, you can call them that. Look, there's, there's not agreement on where the priority should be. So a government can pick winners and losers um, based on the effectiveness and the stats that exist to, to make the argument for the many of the disease advocacy bodies that are out there. Not, don't get me wrong, they're doing great work but you can't give money to everyone for every particular disease so you invariably pick the ones that have the greatest impact that have the greater notoriety that is the autism struggle right there right uh, look at look at the shocking appalling public funding that has gone to people and families dealing with autism because there simply aren't as many of those people, to be unkind, but it is an issue of numbers, as opposed to those who are dealing with cancer, dealing with heart issues, etc. I I think Tim nailed it, and the reason why there's
2: not going to be consensus is because it's tough being the government. Because you know you're going to have to have a loser in some of these decisions, and why would the opposition take a stand in which they have to identify the losers? Exactly. They can let the government figure that out. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why there won't be a consensus, because the decisions in health are life and death. Yep. Can
5: we, do you think we can ever get everybody to room out how we define
1: universal?
3: I thought we had. I actually thought we had that for a long time in this country. And in the last year, I, I don't feel like it's there anymore. I mean, it's that thing I said about the Princess Bride, right? It's like, I, I mean, I've been in meetings and people are. Can we get them to agree on universal? And then they describe what they mean by universal, and I'm like, that's not universal.
4: And don't assume every Canadian wants universal pharmacare. Yeah, no, no. But but that's why. But, but that's why it's hard to define it because it, the, the the phrase universal. Uh, pharma suggests that there's a universal accord for that way i hear it for that pharmacare. that does not
2: exist so i think there is a perfect definition i know how to get there and i will do it for a very reasonable
4: retainer <laughs> how many zeros? yeah I think- they're all consultants except for ann after all so you know you want to hire us we can give you this shit just pay us for it
6: I'll actually have two questions if that's okay. Um, so just a heads up, I write for Hill Times Publishing, so this may be quotable. Uh, my first question is for Anne. Anne, you made an interesting point about the NDP, excuse me, the Liberals thinking they don't need to approach the NDP, but you think they do. I know that question has come up to your leader often. He's often approached with, you don't have the numbers compared to the bloc. So if you can explain what you mean by, I think the Liberals actually do need to come to the NDP.
3: I think they do because they ran on... Many of the things that they ran on are things that we also ran on. And I think that they are supported by uh, a, a vast majority of Canadians. And I think that they, uh, they match what the Liberals say they're about. And uh, I believe that, 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 that many things in this country have happened as a result of that kind of cross-party collaboration. You know, we've seen it even in the recent past. And I think it would be to their benefit to uh, to work with the NDP on these things. Uh, I, I think that, personally, and I've, I've said this before, I, I think that it is uh, uh, somewhat arrogant to think that you don't need to work with others on, on these things. And I think that has been a weakness of the Liberals in the past, and it probably still is. Um, and uh, so, you know, if they they actually... and and our leader has said this many times, if they actually want to get things done on the things that they ran on, their most obvious partner and ally uh, on doing those things, you know, in a real way would be to work with the NDP. So, for instance, on pharmacare, on dental care, Mm -hmm. you know, like we are the ones that are actually advocating. I mean, for instance, our very first uh, private member's bill is on pharmacare. We have an opposition day motion that's being voted on today on dental care.
6: Okay. Uh, my next question is for Tim. Tim, not an expert on leadership races, but just curious.
4: You'd be the only person in Ottawa, apparently, who isn't. <laughs> okay. So at least you're honest about it.
6: <laughs> Made me feel better. Um, about the upcoming leader, conservative leadership race, I'm kind of maybe asking you to be a little psychic, but does health, do you feel like health will actually enter the conversation at all?
4: You want the suspenseful answer or the real answer the honest answer yeah. no how 's that i, I, I be, only in as much as it uh, again will be a defense a, a, a holding answer on uh, on uh, investment in the system and a little bit of around weed. you saw Peter yesterday mckay say. Uh, you know he wasn 't a big fan of the law, but he wasn 't going to change uh, the the, the, the uh, current uh, legalize, or the uh, the current laws around cannabis. You might hear some law and order stuff that 'll be linked to health care uh, but i wouldn 't expect you 'll see any bold, brave policy simply because there 's just no votes among those there are trolling for votes. Uh, for uh, among uh, for, uh, for leadership at the moment. And that's unfortunate, but that's the reality.
2: Well, and they're using public media to get to conservative votes, which is why their comm seems kind of weird to a lot of people who aren't conservative, but it makes a lot of sense to people who are conservative.
4: Now, if you're asking about Paw Patrol, on the other hand, we're going to have an in-depth conversation about rubble, sky, rider. It's all good. Uh, I think we're going to wrap
2: it up there. Thanks, everybody, for listening to us, and we hope you enjoyed it.
0: We we made it. How many hours without Paw Patrol getting referenced? So thank you. Right at the uh, yeah, that's good. Um, uh, a round of applause for our panel. A round of applause for our other participants today. Um, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much to our partners at Takeda and CMA and uh, Santis and Bayshore. Um, I, I was in and out of the room today because I was actually uh, sitting down with a number of our participants in our podcast studio. Uh, so that episode had which had some really fascinating insights in addition to what was discussed here on the stage. Uh, should be out either tomorrow or the next day. So if you're not subscribed to the 2020 network, this is your reminder to do that. Um, and again, uh, thank you very much. It, we're open to feedback. Um, what did you like? What did you not like? What did we miss? Um, what could we do better? What could we do more of? Um, you can get in touch with me, alexicanada 2020ca uh, And I would encourage you to stay in touch with us and come out to more of our stuff because we get to do this because you show up. So thank you very much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. <clears throat>